Father in heaven, today we just again confess our need of you, and that's what has brought us to this conference. And we uh, don't know how to go out or to come in. But the problem is sometimes we think we do. And we just ask today that you would give us a new experience with you. Be with us in this class. Help us to learn and help me to learn. Everything I'm going to share today, I've learned from the people that have gone through the programs. And I look forward to learning today. So we ask again for your spirit and we come in Christ's name. Amen. Do you find that's true, that you learn much more from the people you're serving than they learn from you? Well, maybe maybe I'm the only one, but uh, this really, really happens. Well, I want to talk to you today about what's the connection. Um, you know, uh, there's a preacher that was, uh, I was reading a sermon the other day that he wrote, and he said, God is most glorified when I am most satisfied in him. You like that? God is most glorified when I am most satisfied in him. And the problem is that we, uh, many times as people and uh, in society, we get satisfied in things other than the Lord and things other than the Lord's way. And when we do that, we can go for a while Kind of like my dad, he tells a story. He was driving down the road one day, a little boy, and they were in a Model T. And they were just having a great time. And he looked out the window, and there was this wheel that just came right past him. It wasn't hooked to anything. It just goes rolling right past him. He goes, look at that. Look at that wheel. It's going right there. And then they looked around, and there's no other cars there. And the wheel just kept going down. And he says, look at that. And it's, it's, my grandfather says, what, what, what is it? He goes, well, that's, that's, a, that's a wheel. It's just going right past him. The grandfather put the brakes on a little bit. And sure enough, a wheel went right past him and went out into the field. And then grandfather says, you know, that looks a lot like our wheel. <laughs> and he stopped the car and it went, Poof! you know, so things can go for a while. Pretty good. You, you can enjoy it, uh, but the wheel has fallen off. The pitcher is broken at the fountain, right? And uh, this is what happened with people. You know, they go along and, and, and then they, they need help. And they many times don't recognize it until they get out of the invincible 20s, you know, or 30s. And uh, the wheel comes off <laughs> and they come. And we get the chance to show them how they can be satisfied in the Lord. Um, well, I want to introduce you to my family. This is my wife, Luminitsa. And this is Shmuki, or Elizabeth is her real name, and Shmiki. Shmiki is now two, so you can tell I need to update my pictures. And uh, Shmuki is six. I just turned six the other day. And uh, she is quite something, a little Shmiki. And then this is my newest. Uh, this was an early shot, probably too early to be taken. And you can tell that, it, can you tell what it is by looking? Well, then just uh, look up in the corner, it'll tell you. But there are some telltale marks there. And
And this is Malcolm. Call him Malcolm Powder. This is right when he came out. This is right when he came out. This is like a minute after he was born. He looks so sly. Looks like his mother. He looks like he's, he's up to something. Okay, so that's my family. You know, I was reading an article the other day. If your church was shut down, would the community notice? <laughs> Uh, what would they say? What program or service would they demand you continue and why? Um, and maybe this isn't the best thing if you're here because you want to do things out of your practice, but if your practice was shut down, what would they remember it for? What was it that your practice has that no other practice has? What is the difference? I think we're coming to a time when the defining difference will be spiritual things. And we're in a time when people are more and more open to that. We stand on the shoulders of a lot of other people, but people now are much more open to that than they were in the 60s and the 70s. And in the postmodern era, people want experience. Yeah, you know, I was listening. I, so much for this postmodern stuff. This guy's talking the other day. He goes, oh, they just want experience. I said, when they get sick, do well, they want an experience? No, they look at what's on your wall. They want to make sure you had some training. The guy didn't like me. I was a rubble rebel in his seminar. But um, Well, I want to tell you a little story about our church there. This is our church. and we, we, We've done a number of programs over the years. And uh, one of the things the physicians in my church was is Dr. Phil Mills was there for 13 years with me until he was raptured with a capital C that's captured and then raptured to Dalton, Georgia I won't name any names <laughs> and he was there and then I worked also my uh, his compatriot, my head elder now is Kevin Bryant and Kevin Bryant is a physician, a gerontologist and Dr. Mills is in physical medicine and we were just really partnered together and they would invite their patients to different things and we would work together and over the years we uh, started really developing well we just made a bunch of mistakes together to be honest and through making those mistakes and stumbling through those we started to learn a few things um, if ever the Lord has spoken by me we're told he speaks when I say that, that workers engaged in the educational line and the ministerial line and the medical missionary lines must stand as a unit all laboring under the super, supervision of God one helping the other each blessing each. And this is what happened in my church. I have got to tell you the last 13 years was just a blessing. I mean, a lean, mean, glorifying God machine. It was, it just, uh, you know, I just couldn't wait to get up in the morning. And I could hardly stand to go to bed. It wasn't quite as bad as Kellogg. <laughs> but, and there's nothing like it. And, and for you you folks that are in the medical and dental areas, you know, I'm just saying as a pastor, it is such a blessing to work with health professionals that want to do the Lord's will. And I imagine that it's a blessing to work with pastors that want to do that too. So I want to talk about several things here in uh, making the connection. Scientific excellence, sacrificial service, sufficient time, sources of authority, spiritual pathways being established. 
um, first of all, scientific excellence. What we found in our programs is that there's no substitute for scientific excellence. Scientific excellence in your clinical area, you need to be the best you can be. Um, and in your presentations for your programs. Uh, scientific excellence is a documentation of God's right arm activity. That's what research is. God gave us the ability to do research. And uh, so I, I just love uh, professionals that can bring that to the table, like yourselves and the people in my church. So scientific excellence. Now, we've done the CHIP program as a follow-up to a lot of different things. And one of the reasons I like that is because now there's seven scientific peer-reviewed articles that have been done on the program. And uh, that's helpful when you're talking to people. And you say, this is from that magazine or that and the other. So scientific excellence. What Adventists received, I was interviewing Dr. Gary Fraser recently. What Adventists received more than 140 years ago was indeed a remarkable gift that is increasingly being validated by science. And there are more than 300 peer-reviewed scientific pages in the medical literature on Adventist health. There's probably more than that now, but in his book that Dr. Fraser did at Oxford, how many of you have that book? goes through all of the different studies that were done on Adventists. Excuse me? I don't know. Um, uh, this, uh, the Adventist Health Advantage, Living Longer, Living Better, was a review article. But Gary Fraser, I'm sure if you contact him at Loma Linda, and if you just go to Google, if, if I was to go to Google right now, put Gary Fraser and Oxford University and Adventist Studies, it would come up. Excellent resource to have, um, but this is a blessing. So in our program, this is one of our meals, sort of like Dr. Weaver's. Uh, you know, we have them all come together, and they just love getting together and commiserating and talking. And you know, here are our uh, results um, from our program um, in terms of uh, this particular program. Pre-chip cholesterols were at average of 210, then they went down to 175. And so we see that pretty consistently. And though. If you take everybody that goes down 15%, those that are greater than 200 uh, usually go down greater amount, 20%. And every drop in cholesterol, as you know, is a significant drop in the risk of death from, from heart attack, heart disease. And these people are just ecstatic. I mean, you know, they see that and they, and, and they just, you know, you've you got to talk to them and say, some of you are not going to have these results. You've got to get them ready for that. But 80% of them are having these, these kind of good results, 85%. And then the weight goes down over the month program. People are just uh, excited about that. A little bit more for the men than the ladies. And uh, those that are taking blood pressure medication and those that are taking insulin coming down. You know, and then there's some elegant studies of Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn showing the improvement in the coronary arteries from angiography after um, a 30% improvement um, after 60 months of a plant-based diet. So, you know, it's a, an appreciable change. And these things are a documentation of the divine. They, they really are a documentation of repentance. You know, you want to have the science of repentance. This is it. And uh, the gift of repentance. And 
so people see this. And you know, you don't talk about that as a program, you know, freak people out, but I'm always thinking about these things, you know. So uh, that's a little about the program that we've seen um, there. And for some reason, this is going slower. I don't know why. And this is, enough, this is a, a little greater improvement. This is 32 months on a plant-based diet with the CHIP program. I'm not making a commercial for the CHIP program. Look, anything you use in your medical practice or whatnot, this is just documenting excellence, okay? And people have to know, and some people are just, they obviously know that you help them when they come out of surgery, right? And they obviously know these things. And they have the same kind of gratitude that we've seen in these programs. Our physicians in my church were not really, I mean, a doctor of physical medicine and gerontologist, you know, we're not going to cart people over from the nursing homes. And he wasn't seeing people in the, but, you know, they could refer a lot of different people. Okay. And uh, the other great thing that I've, I've noticed is that you can bring in other people on your team. I mean, you don't have to do it all. Um, the, the CHIP program is a bunch of DVDs. I love DVDs. I mean, I mean, they do a good job, right? But what we've tried to do in our program is not just witness to um, our church, but then invite the community and the alumni back, and then we bring in special speakers. This is Dr. Uh, Colin Campbell. And these people are... Um, in search of the gospel as well. And uh, it's been interesting to me, the relationships that have been built by our local church with these people that are not of this faith. And they, I could show you the emails back and forth between he and I as we're studying through different things and concepts. And you guys can do more of that than I ever could because you're always consulting, talking to people, and those relationships are there. And it's exciting that the health message is the entering wedge. I mean, people say, well, what do you do uh, after the program to bridge? Well, you're in. You're already in. The entering wedge is the entering wedge, isn't it? I mean, right? That's a pretty simple concept, but if it's the entering wedge, you're in. So what do you do when you're in, right? Move them on. Hammer it down, right? Split it open, yeah. Scientific excellence and then sacrificial service, I might say. So the first part, we brought in these excellent speakers and whatnot. But the second thing that you have to have if you're wanting to make a connection with people, first you have to have, sac you have, to have the scientific excellence. Secondly, they have to pick up some way from your practice or from your church or from your program, sacrificial service. How are you sacrificing? I listened to Dr. Weaver this morning. I don't think he'll succumb to pride by me mentioning him. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's a surgery for that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and I've known, I went to school with his daughter years ago. And uh, you could tell in the program that sacrifice was throughout it. You heard it this morning. Scientific excellence and sacrifice were in that program, that report. Did you hear the scientific excellence? And did you hear the sacrifice? Well, we always take people with us on vacation. We have, uh, you know, all these volunteers, and so our program is like this. Look, he might think, uh, they should make some money of that. 
If you want to make a spiritual connection, you better look for ways to have sacrificial service. And when you have sacrificial service, people go, what's wrong with you? They say, you must be loony or you must love me, one of the two. And you're too smart to be that dumb. You know, they, you, you, that's what they say. I mean, I'm just crystallizing. And I've heard this a million times. They say, well, why are these people coming in? And they've been there all day at work and this and that. And here they are. Dr. So-and-so and this and that. And, and they're volunteering their time. You know, what we've lost in medicine, and maybe I don't know if we had it in dentistry, probably did as well, is, is, the, is the visit in someone's home where they knew you had come to see them. So we have clinics and we have this and we have that. And, and sometimes people just think, well, I'm just a number. So you have to have creative ways to go beyond that. And uh, this is an essential component. You know, lots of people think that this is you. <laughs> just trying to collect a bunch of pictures of dead presidents. And they are just helping you with your collection. Right? That's what they think. And uh, so you got to have, uh, you've got to model that yourself and then your team. This is my team. They're dropping like flies. I'm even leaving the church now to come out here to California. But uh, Susan works all day in Dr. Bryant's office, but she'll come at 5.30 in the morning on our screening days. And she's there ministering to the people, talking to them. Jan, she came in because of the health message. Jan, uh, she's my health director at my church. Gives on stenting of her time, worked all day, comes in her scrubs, just as nice as can be. I don't know how, how she's even that nice after working all day, but just is. Amy, uh, Sherard, just as you're, uh, you're not related to her, are you? Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> she's, anyone that meets her, she's their mother. Like, if you meet her, she's your mother. It doesn't matter who you are. And that's how she comes across. I mean, and she'd do anything. And people get that sense. And you look at the people's faces. Here they are. They're, they're listening at this particular time to Amy. And they're just... I mean, you could put a hook in their mouth, take them anywhere you want to go. It would have to be a hook. You just say, come with me. And that's what they would do. And the sacrificial service lays the foundation. It's what is called disinterested benevolence. Now, this is a misunderstood term in the Adventist church. I may mention this when there's more of us around. Disinterested benevolence, many people say, well, that just means I have to act disinterested, but I'm really benevolent. <laughs> this means that I'm just going to do everything and they'll never know. They'll just kind of by osmosis pick up the fact that I'm godly. And that needs to happen. I'm into osmosis. How many of you like osmosis? It's very good. And, but it goes beyond that. I mean, in speaking about the early sanitariums and the work of the Advent movement, Ellen White had this to say. Should those connected with this enterprise cease to look at their work from a high religious standpoint and descend from the exalted principles of present truth to imitate in theory and practice those who are the heads of institutions where the sick are treated only for the recovery of health. You guys ask yourself, are people coming to me only for the recovery of their smile? Or only for the recovery so they can go an extra mile? Um, and are you looking at it that way? Not them. They may come for that, but are you looking at it that way? 
what would happen? The special blessing of God would not rest on our institution more than on those where corrupt theories are taught. So we have to find a way, if we want the blessing of the Lord, to have this sacrificial disinterested benevolence. Now, let me just say something about disinterested benevolence again. I forgot to put it up here in my, in my slide. As I've studied all the statements in Ellen writings about disinterested benevolence, you know what it really means? You are so interested that the people you serve come to know Jesus that you don't care what it does to your reputation to talk to them about it. Have you heard it put that way before? Is that heresy? <laughs> Say it again. Right. It's sacrifice. It's sacrifice. And, and you're so interested in them that, you know, you're, you're going to talk to them about who your best friend is. And you're going to find a way. To, now, look, I know. Ellen White says the same thing. There's certain times when you don't talk about certain things. You know the quotes. You've probably read those. Um, but your intention is to look for every opening. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So... Sacrificial, scientific excellence, sacrificial service, sufficient time. If you're going to make a connection, it takes time. It may not be your time. It may be your staff's time, but it is going to be some of your time. Ultimately, when you look through the Bible, it always comes down to time. Jesus would, not a lot of time sometimes, but you had to spend time with people. Because the clock is moving. And uh, notice these statements. God's servants should be minutemen, ever ready to move as fast as his providence opens the way. Delay gives time for Satan to work and defeat them. Sometimes people are only open for that moment just before the surgery. Sometimes they're only open um, when they're going through that medical crisis. And they'll ask that question, and you can say, I'm too busy. And you know what? That does not come up again for those people. One of the things I would love to help physicians and dentists do, I'm moving from the church here to Amazing Facts, College of Evangelism. One of the things I would love to do is train Bible workers that could work in practices and help people with this, where they would learn enough about what you do to be able to interface with people. You guys are the rainmakers in your organization, spiritually and every other way. But which is the most important? Got to remember the timing. The most signal victories and most fearful defeats have been on the turn of minutes. Minutes. And just a word, she says, spoken at the right time. And this happens so much in the clinical arena. Jesus, when he worked with Nicodemus, was the middle of the night. And he knew how to work with individuals that were of high standing. He protected his anonymity, but he went right to the core in his interview. And he answered his questions. And in John 4, he knew how to work in the middle of the day with a woman that no one else would talk to. There's always going to be different things that come in. But I would say this. In our programs, we find the more educationally advanced the person is, the more time and the more personal work it takes. 
the, I mean, maybe you found the same. Yeah, exactly. This, this is very true. And look, I love to study with people that are smart and that are bright. And I approach them just like I would anybody else in certain ways. They have the same needs, exactly the same needs. They're lonely. They wonder if this, they wonder if that. Jesus uh, recognized that. She said, look, I want everything you got to drink. <laughs> so this is what happens. Sufficient time is spent. Like The reason I like uh, programs, and it can be any program, but the reason I like the chip program, we've used it for 16 programs now, is because it's, it's over four weeks. It's a month. Most people don't spend that much time with anything else in their life since high school or college. And you spend time with them, same group, and it's a, just an experience they haven't had for years. And that sufficient time allows you to build that relationship with them. Four times a week. Four times a week. For four weeks. And then on Sundays, during the we, have, we eat together. And by the way, I'll talk about that. Eating with people. Woo! That is very important if you want to make a spiritual connection. I mean, the devil knew it was important. He ate with Eve. You don't eat with them, someone else is going to. Am I right? That's right. If you eat them, you beat them. But uh, that's it. So, second, the, the next S. We've had scientific excellence, sufficient time. I mean, uh, sacrificial servant, sufficient time. And then source of authority. When people come to you, because you have demonstrated scientific excellence and you have shown sacrificial service and the sufficient time, they give you more and more leeway. You may not know it. You think, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to talk to this. You know what? I'm leaving my church. I've been 13 years there. The last three weeks, I told them, I've been here, th- I've been here 13 years. I'm going, to, I'm going to preach five farewell sermons. i got to catch up. The average pastor only stays two or three years in a church, and they get to preach a farewell sermon every so often. I haven't been able to do that. I'm doing a series called <laughs> How to Farewell. All right? You know what's happened in this series? I should have left many times, I think. Because when you, think, when you realize that you may never see someone again or have the same openness, do you act differently? And do they act differently? Last week, I got to the end of my sermon and I said, Lord, I told the people, I said, I... I don't have any cute stories. I couldn't think of anything to finish the sermon. I don't know what to say, so let's just pray to the Lord. And I prayed, and God gave me the gift of tears. I started to cry. I said, will you accept the Lord that haven't accepted the Lord? Twenty people came forward. They want to be baptized or rebaptized. Why am I saying this? You get nervous about talking to people, but what if you thought, this could be my last day? This could be their last time. And for some of them, it is. You see what I mean? So don't be nervous about this. Use the God-given authority God has given you, and he has opened up. You are the entering wedge. You're in. Right? You're going to miss a log now and then. We won't split it completely open, but... Uh, the Lord will give you wisdom about what to do with that. 
Sources of authority. Um, the fact about every program, no matter how successful, and every practice, is that people we see, including ourselves, die. It doesn't matter how good we are. People that go through my CHIP programs, they die. People that go through your stop smoking thing, they die. People that go to your practice, they die. This is the great missed thing in the medical practice. We go every day and we talk to these patients and we talk about saving lives. But in 25 years, most of them that we've treated are dead. In 100 years, they're all gone. Most. Well, if we're practiced, right? And so keeping death in focus will really help you in your making that connection. Um, I've found. These are chip graves. <laughs> Scientific excellence, sacrificial service, sufficient time, sources of authority, and a spiritual path established. I, I didn't say anything about sources of authority. Your source of authority is one thing, but the second thing is when people come to you, they come or come to a health program that has scientific excellence. They come because of the scientific excellence. That's the source of authority. You've got the John Chung MD and all the other things so you can make alphabet soup. And they go, oh, yes, a lot of alphabet soup. I can trust that guy. And look at the experience, you know. They probably look up on the Google and see what happened, you know, see if there's anything. Have you ever done that? I had this moving company last week. I was about ready to sign the thing. I looked them up on Google, Google and there was these horror stories. Save me, man. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> source of authority. They come because of the scientific evidence, but you have to switch them if you're going to make the connection through all these different things from scientific excellence, which is a documentation of God's right arm through research, to the revelation of scripture and spirit of prophecy. You've got to keep that in mind. I always have that in mind in every conversation I'm having. If I was talking just to you, I'd have that in mind. If, I was talking, if I'm talking on the plane, I always say, where am I on the court with this person? Michael Jordan was a good basketball player because he knew where he was on the court at all times. And I try and figure out where I am with that person. Ellen White says that we should visit everybody in our neighborhood and know their spiritual condition. If she says that about your neighborhood, what about your practice? And how can you come to know that through your spiritual survey or this or that? I mean, Dr. Guthrie, when he says NP or P, pray or not pray, that'll give you a gauge right there. You know the spiritual condition right there. Just that simple. And then try and move them along from where they are. I especially like the ones that say, don't pray with me. These are the greatest challenges. They may be under conviction when they said that. That may be an evidence of the Holy Spirit right there. Oh, I don't want you to pray with me. Oh. <laughs> oh. Well, I'll think about you. That means to pray again, right? Hey, I want to tell you an exciting story. Last Sabbath, when I made the appeal, a man I'd studied with in a chip program, so he, his, he came to the thing and he said, my wife drugged me here, was an atheist, and he told me all the reasons why. I used the material I'm talking with you about today. Last Sabbath, after two years, two and a half years, he came forward for the appeal and went to his home 
I said, what did that mean to you? I never think when someone comes for an appeal that I just fill up the tank. I always go, especially if they're intellectual like this guy. This guy designed the global flyer, you know, the thing that went all the way around the world. He designed the electrical system for it. He was at my chip program, right? So I go to his house. I go, what does that mean? He started to cry. Was he spiritually in tune? He's crying. And I said, George, that's the best thing. I started to cry. And he goes, why are you crying? I said, well, we're just both crying. <laughs> it's the water of life, you know, something like that. And I said, you, you've been born again. The tears on the outside let me know that you want some more water on the outside through baptism. You want to start a new life. The two weeks before, he said, well, my wife wants me to join the church, but I'll have to do this and that and the other. He said, look, is there anything you want me to do? I'll do anything around the church. Been born again, right? So um, you've got to get this book by Louis Torres. Uh, he's written a book on uh, the signs of, uh, of conviction. Read that book, man. It's, it's, it's worth gold. I, I used to think people get mad at me are not really spiritually open. <laughs> oh, I was so wrong. I had Louis Torres at my church, and he was doing this campaign with me, and this lady was just really mad at him going like this and stuff. And he goes, man, she's a good interest. <laughs> I said, what is wrong with you, you know? Sure enough, you know. So anyway, we've got to study more about these things. Okay, okay a spiritual pathway then is... <laughs> spiritual pathway is established. The source of authority, we're moving from science to the scriptures, right? And the spirit of prophecy. And your program or your practice or your interaction has created the spiritual pathway because you're a spiritual person. You're the bridge to the future. You're not like Bill Clinton's bridge that just goes halfway across the river. It's all the way. It's eternal life. Nothing against Bill. If you're listening. So <laughs> that's a very far, far-fetched chance, right? But with Homeland Security, you never know. Um, so <laughs> chip or your practice or your program is the thin in, thin edge of the wedge of truth. There's a lot more where that came from. And it's the right arm that opened the door. And the body has to go through, not just the fingers. If the fingers just go through, when the door closes, we have a problem. So, um, what comes next? Health reform is closely connected with the work of the third message, yet it is not the message. And that's what we have to remember. Um, and that's why I think ministers and physicians coupling together is so powerful. And I just wish that for each of you. Men will never be truly temperate until the grace of Christ is the abiding principle in the heart. Dr. Weaver just saying this with his recidivism um, comments. Circumstances cannot work reform. Christianity proposes a reformation in the heart. What Christ works within will be worked out under the dicta dictation of a converted intellect. The plan of beginning outside and trying to work inward has always failed and always will fail. Look, your practice, your program is only circumstantial until you start working from the inside out. People will come to your program for different reasons. And, oh, did you want to look at that a little more? Did you hear that? Sorry. Yeah, this 
don't let don't don't let, let don't let us bother you. Oh, uh, well, uh, you're stretching it there, buddy. <laughs> um, seriously, I I will, yeah. You just tell me to slow down at any time. I may or may not listen to you. It was uh, T Volume One, page, the one before was 559. All right. So, I'm trying to remember. So, you know, people come and uh, they make these, they, they begin to ask questions and they begin to say, what is the connection between this and your program? Your, your program is great and it's, it's all on the outside at first and your practice is great. It's all on the outside at first. But if you've done these different things, they'll begin naturally to ask questions. And it's always best to be answering questions than trying to create a false moment. It's like my wife. You know, when I was converted, finally I said, I'm converted, I want to get married. And I weeded out a lot of ladies, you know, right at first by my methodology. And then I learned something. You don't ask someone to marry you until you know they're going to say yes. Those of you who are not married, this is a principle. Those of you listening on the tape, you can take this one to the bank. Don't ask until you know. Don't talk about the Sabbath until you know it's going to be well received. Don't talk about any aspect of the faith until you have the assurance. You see what I'm saying? And you can get that. I mean, I've seen this in every point of doctrine that the Adventist Church teaches. So, they begin to ask questions. And that's how I came up with the title for our seminar, What's the Connection? That was the question they asked. I didn't come up with that. They would say, what's the connection between this and your church? What's the connection? And pretty soon I said, you know, you can tell someone why the sky is blue, just it's blue, or you can explain why. Do you want the big answer or the little answer? And they'd say, well, I'd like a little more than you gave me. Why do you go to church on Sabbath? They'd ask me, well, we want to beat the rush. There's a lot of traffic from your church. And they'd laugh. Say, wait, you know, your church has got traffic jams, and we go a day early. And then they said, that's not why you do it. I said, you call me a liar? Said, yeah. You know, I said, well, yeah, there is a little more to it, you know. And uh, this one minister came through our program. We had about 15 ministers come through our program now. And this one minister came through the program, and he, he, he said, you're not going to send messages about this to all my church members, are you? I said, well, what? I was planning on you to do that. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, I've heard that this place is a cult. And I said, really? Well, why are you here? <laughs> he says, I'm sick. I said, okay, we might be a cult, but we live a lot longer than your church. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, he, and this guy was, it was hilarious. The, the way this guy broke down the prejudice, he came to the program and he was a pastor of a huge Baptist church in our town. At the end of the program, he kept asking, what's the connection? And he got it. He says, I'd like you to come visit my church some Sunday. I said, oh, I will. I said, you come to my church Saturday, I go to your church Sunday. We don't have any conflict to schedule. <laughs> and he did. He came to our church, right? So I go to his church the next week. I got there a little late because I'm not used to Sunday services. My brother-in-law is with me. And we come in and we're late. And this is like 2,500. It's packed out. A packed out church, right? 
And the only seats that are available are right on the front row. <laughs> so we go up and sit on the front row. Now, this is a Baptist church. And the front row is often reserved for those that are making their first decision for Christ. <laughs> reserved for the altar, the appeal. So I go up to the front row. And the pastor goes, praise God, the Adventist pastor has accepted Jesus. And everybody erupts and claps. You know, I think that was a cheap shot. That was, that was rather ungodly. No, but I laughed about that. But then he came home in the message. He, was, he said, seriously, the Adventist, and he gave a little theology of hell. And then he showed his numbers on the screen of how his cholesterol had come down. And then his wife handed out a recipe for lentil loaf to 2,500 people. Amen? And it all started with him asking, what's the connection? And saying, you're a cult. And uh, one of his church members showed up at the next program. I said, does your pastor know you're here? He said, yeah, he told me to come here. I said, he did? I called him up on the phone. I said, John! Someone's at the program here, and they said, you told them to come. Don't you know we're a cult? <laughs> you, know, you know, got him back a bit. And we've just great friends. You know, the health message will break down prejudice. And so will your practice. Okay. I can't tell too many more stories. We've got a lot to cover. So Christ's method then in making this connection is very instructive. This morning we learned, and man, I was so excited to learn what I shared with you this morning about the Sabbath and sanctuary being connected with the right arm. Wasn't that exciting? I just got so, I was like a goosebumps when I found it. I was like, <gasps> anyway, what Jesus did whenever people were healed, remember Luke 17? Ten lepers came to be healed. And what did he say to them? Go. Show yourself to the priest. Go to the sanctuary, right? And the only one that was really whole came back. And what I found in our programs is that I don't worry about the end result as much as where I am with the person. I don't remind releasing them if I've done all those S's correctly. They can go back to their church, they go back to their doctor, and they're just like, just like the people that were healed back in Jesus' day, you know. Don't tell anybody, and they tell everybody. Right? And then there's about 10%. In Dr. Nedley's program in depression recovery, it's about 60%. But about 10% in our programs come back to the spiritual follow-up. What's the connection? You ask an evangelist how many people get baptized from an evangelistic campaign. It's not much higher than 10%. That's a good campaign. Think about that. So they'll come back. But it's only if you um, understand, I think, these principles. I'll show you a picture of George. This is George, the guy that came forward last week. And uh, he and his wife. <laughs> and they came in from a chip program two years ago with Jan there. Okay. Um, I just put some testimonies up here. That's his testimony. This is a minister and his wife who came into the Adventist church through the CHIP program. And 3ABN, they first heard about the health methods on 3ABN, then they called our church up. The church becomes a place of healing. Medical missionaries who labor in evangelistic lines are doing a work as high in order as their ministerial fellow workers. 
In the higher walks of life will be found many who respond to truth because it's consistent and because it bears the stamp of the high character of the gospel. Not a few of men of ability, thus one to the cause, will enter energetically into the Lord's work. And that can happen. You folks are positioned to see that happen. So, a little bit about this seminar then. Um, We've got to understand five basic keys. I've covered some of these, so I'll, I'll breeze through them, and then I'll show you a little bit about what we've done. I've talked a little bit about the Three Angels experience. What we did at Three Angels was tried all kinds of different approaches and made all kinds of uh, mistakes, and then we discovered a program that worked for us, CHIP. We've had about 800 people go through our program now. 10% of the alumni are involved, and many of them have made decisions. We've got friends in the business community and the church community, the medical community, and with the general public. I mean, I'll have physicians call me up that I don't even know as the pastor of the church and say, we've heard you have a program. I just have this or that. When's your next program? That's after 10 years of doing that. And uh, those things then happen. So we have to understand motivation with people. Um, You know, I went over to this vegetarian congress with Dr. Deal one year. And uh, when you deal with health and then you, you start to involve your members and people, you can get a lot of fruitcakes that come to your, uh, your church. How many of you have noticed this? No one? These, th- there are some wackos out there. I was at this Congress and I talked to, this guy was a nice guy. He's not a wacko. He's not a wacko. I mean, maybe, could you delete this from the tape? Uh, <laughs> one of God's children who has a different perspective. And this particular man came all the way from Africa to the Vegetarian Congress, and you can't see it in the pictures, but he, his eye was injured and he, his arm was hurt. He, he almost got killed because he was coming to the Vegetarian Congress. And all the farmers around him in Africa raised dairy and, and beef things, and they were afraid that he would bring back a message that was so powerful they'd lose their business, so they tried to kill him. But he did his best, and he got to the Vegetarian Congress. He was there. And he told me the harrowing experience of how he risked all to come to the International Vegetarian Congress. And I said, what motivates a guy to do that? I mean, I would not go to the Vegetarian Congress if I was going to get killed. Right? So I asked him, I said, well, why are, you, why are you interested in this? And he says, well, I believe in the oneness of all life. And I was like, that's heavy, you know. It's size, I, I don't know what that means, but that's good. Uh, sounds good. It's not really good, but Kellogg got off into that. But anyway, so, and then he says, I, I desire to have spherical compassion on all sentient life. And I was, what does that mean? I had to look it up. You know, in other words, and I began to understand that his motivation was spiritual, that it was intense, that was his Motivation. He, he believed that he might have another life, and if he didn't do things right, he'd come back. He was into the karmic type thing, right? So I, you know, I, I had a couple of these people come to my program that were of Eastern religion, and, you know, you say you must be born again. That's not a problem. They've done that like a thousand times. And they have a whole different paradigm, right? And uh, you have to understand, the big point I'm trying to make here, I'm not trying to denigrate anybody. What I'm trying to say to you is you have to understand the motivation of people that come if you're going to help them make the spiritual bridge. Because the things you think you might need to say, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, well, I got these amazing fax flyers or this or that. That's not right for everybody. You give it to them and it doesn't work. That's why you have to kind of, when you know their spiritual condition, know what their motivation is. 
anybody that's made a decision at our church, either one of our physicians, myself, or the other people that study with people at the church, they know what the motivation, what's motivating the people. And I'll ask them when I sit down and I say, what's bringing the person to the seminar? When they're sitting at the tables and the different things, they say, why is this happening? You know, what's going on? Well, I was at the same Congress and there was this other guy that, uh, this is not a picture of his arms. He was too terrifying to even take a picture. I got this off the internet. But this guy had tattoos on one arm and said vegan and the other arm and said revolution. And I said, uh, you know, and he was standing right in front of this store right here. <laughs> and this is the exact picture of where he was, and I did not take a picture of him. I was just like, man, I almost, you know. And he had the badge on for the Congress, so I knew he was with it. Vegan revolution, man. And I said, so, so why are you vegetarian? He says, I want, to, I want to revolutionize the world. I thought, man, sounds almost like an Adventist. <laughs> I want to revolutionize the world. And then he looked right at my belt. He says, what's your... Uh, belt made out of because he's vegan revolution I saw that my life was in great danger right this guy had huge muscles he's looking right at my belt and then he looks at my shoes I thought this is it I one two three strikes you're out and I'm thinking this is it so I knew that all was lost and so I said to him I said well sir this is human skin. <laughs> and he went, oh, like that. And I said, i got to run. You know, so I terrified him a bit. <laughs> but this whole idea is knowing the motivation of people. Now, here's what happens. Regardless of the motivation of people, you've got to know that. Those, this is what you've got to understand. Those that are willing to inform themselves concerning the effect of sinful indulgence upon health and who commence the work of reform they might say to you, oh, I know I shouldn't be doing that. Tell me what I should do. And you ask them why. And they say, because I want to be able to go to Las Vegas next year with my friends. Their motivation is somewhat selfish. How many would agree with that? Well, maybe they're going to some church gathering in Las Vegas. I doubt it. But um, those who commence this work of reform, even from selfish motives, in so doing, place themselves where the truth of God may find access to their hearts. You've got to remember that. Figure out their motivation and remember that. So then you have to understand causation. This is a picture I took in Scotland. What is this? This is, this is actually a picture of uh, the uh, place where the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica originated right here near this place. But this is a picture of all the people that were smokers. They were starting their cigarettes there. Okay? <laughs> well, why did I put that up? What is the leading cause of death in the world? That's correct. Usually you ask people, they say have heart disease. They say cancer. But really, the leading cause is sin. I was uh, walking down Princess Street in that same place. And there was this man there, and he had this sign, After Death, Judgment, Repent. And he's walking along, and all these people are just going around. Now, he had it straight. He knew what was happening, that people were going to die, and there was going to be a judgment. Was he witnessing? He was witnessing. I walked right past him. I was like, oh, man, that guy's an embarrassment <laughs> to the Christian religion. I'm thinking that. But I was over there considering being a missionary to Scotland. 
And I hadn't met anyone that was really doing anything, and this was the first guy I met that was really doing something. So I go back to him and I said, Hi, my name's Don, and I really enjoyed your sign. <laughs> and he said, Are you a Christian? And I said, Yes. He goes, Well, I need to keep moving. I'm trying to help people that are not saved in the kingdom. <laughs> and I said to him, uh, just a minute. He goes, I really, if you want to follow me, you can do that. I've got another sign back at the office. You can carry a sign, too. <laughs> and I was like, what in the world, you know? I realized this was the first Signs of the Times guy. I mean, this was the really the real thing. So I began to talk to him, and he says, I said, well, I said to him, well, you know, he goes, well, what religion are you? There was a little break in the crowd. He would hand out these flyers. I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I go to church on Sabbath in accordance with all the commandments. <laughs> Almost asked for an appeal right there. And he said, so do I. I don't know. You might question George's method, and I would not maybe suggest it for your practice. <laughs> but he had understood something. He knew the, the seriousness of the problems, and he had gone right to the heart of it. Now, I might say you want to be a little more subtle than this. But he, don't ever forget that the reason people are coming to your office is not because of your marketing scheme. It's because of sin. Don't ever forget the reason, oh, our hospital's doing very well. That just means sin is doing very well. <laughs> oh, yes, uh, we're making a lot of money in the practice this year. Sin is doing well. Understand? And when you think that, what happens? You begin to think, these are not people that are making me wealthy. These are people that what? Need the message of salvation. This was a big concept to me. Same thing is true for a minister. Oh, I've got a big church. Yeah. Anyway. I'm not going to pick on ministers. I'll let you do that. So, question is, what is sin? Some people will say immediately, transgression of the law. Thank you for that example. This does not help so much in working with health contacts. You say to them, well, good to see you again. You've been transgressing the laws of God. Welcome to the office today. <laughs> That's not going to work, you know, with most people. Well, it will work maybe bad. But what I find is more helpful is this, Isaiah 59.2. Your sins have separated you. What does sin lead to? The wages of sin is death. When I talk to people about that, they begin to resonate. It, it leads to death and ultimately the second death. When I start to talk to them about how they're being separated prematurely from their grandkids, how they're being separated prematurely from their wife or husband unless they stop this, those relational concepts they respond to. And I'm really using the language of sin and dealing with their problem. So, motivation, causation, in other words, keeping sin, and then understanding the basic struggle. When people come to you, this is their struggle. They, I mean, they may have a surgical problem. They may have lung, uh, lung cancer that you have to take a lobe out or something. But really, it was because... They gave in to the flesh. And uh, sensualism, materialism, and egoism got them. They said, look, I like it. It tastes good. And I have the money to afford it. And I want it. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the pride of life, and the flesh. And that leads them 
along with their genetic vulnerabilities, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, susceptibility to the disease process that they're presenting with. But it's all an issue usually of the mind that's presenting. Now, when you introduce them to your CHIP program or to your health program or to your spiritual practice or your Bible study, this is what's happening. This is the spirit and scientific reason is presented. Come, let us reason together. God gave the ability to do this. And the, the, the faith looks reasonable. You saw that statement by Ellen White, isn't that right? It's reasonable. I say, oh, look, yes. And then it strikes that this is right. The conscience comes in. This is right. Yes, I know, that's right. And they say, it's worth my attention. And their frontal lobe, they say, wait, this is right. So you have the spirit that wars against the flesh. And when you're helping people make the connection, I do this in one of my lessons, by the way, with people, and they see it. When, they, uh, when, they, when, you, when you show them the great controversy between the flesh and the spirit, then they say, well, what do we do? And then you begin to be able to deal with everything depends on the right action of the will. Steps to Christ, page 48. Not by the will of the flesh, John 1, 13 but by the will of God. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. And I help them understand that, that they have to be born again, and then God enters in, and they can then not have that going back to smoking or this or that or the other, but it won't happen unless they're born again. We only have circumstantial evidence in our CHIP program or with our intervention or whatever we've done. We've only given them some time so that hopefully they can use this. And the, the, the power of choice that thoughts have to be underneath it. You know, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, for the casting down of imaginations and every high thing, bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. And so, if the thoughts are right, the feelings will be right, and the thoughts and feelings make up the moral character, Right? So I'm, I'm helping them with this. And this is what happens in a, in a CHIP program. We try and educate, educate, educate. And then the thoughts are right. And the feelings are right. And they choose it. And they see the benefits. They document the, the gift of repentance that's come. And they go, whoa. And then you say, they get this sense of gratitude. They say, what's the connection? And we say, look, I'm glad you asked that question. Because if you make this connection, you'll be able to sustain what's happened here. And if you don't, you probably won't. And so I, I think when we work with people, we have to understand the basic struggle. Okay? Now, I know you guys want to all write it down, but I've got to move on to com. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you can get it in the end. Yeah. And by the way, Dr. Timothy Jennings, he's a psychiatrist. He, on 3ABN, I interview physicians and dentists. Does anyone want to be on my program? Please contact me. I love to interview people, and I interview many different people. And um, he shared this chart, but I went through and looked up all the scriptural references. So it's uh, kind of an amalgamation. Yes, it's in my book. So what happens in scientifically-based programs? People, in the light of evidence given, make informed decisions to do healthy things. They go back, if you will, repentance, to the future, God's fast foods instead of man's fast foods. And God gave us this ability. John Stout in his book, Your Mind Matters, has a great quote. Although it is a proclamation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth showeth forth his handiwork day and the day, other speech and night and night, you know, the text. 
there is no voice where it hasn't gone out. So there's this message going out. Although it is a proclamation without speech and a voice without words, yet as a result of it, all men to some degree know God. This assumed ability of man to read what God has written in the universe is extremely important because all scientific research is based on it. Right? I help people make this connection in their minds um, in the seminar. And I, I show them that really in the chip program or the health program or the intervention they've been through, this has caused them to do things that have brought health. And they actually, like Isaac Newton say, said, are beginning to think God's thoughts after him. That's what science well done really is. <laughs> he crops up again. He turned to us, you know, George, I saw him later in the day. And uh, he was still there with the sign. And uh, on his sign, he recommended repentance. And I've often thought about George. This is really it. Our practices are all about repentance. People come to you not because they want to keep the process going on that's been going on. Oh, I broke one bone and I'd like to break a few others. <laughs> I understand I have over 10, 200. No one says that, right? They have come for the gift of repentance. Your practice is a gift of repentance. That's what it is. And it's a very spiritual thing. Repentance is not this. Multitude sorrow that they have sinned and even make an outward reformation. That can happen. Because they fear that their wrongdoing will bring suffering on themselves. But this is not repentance. They lament the suffering rather than the sin. So then what is true repentance? It's a change of mind, a purpose of heart, and a life. The word means not merely sorrow, but a forsaking of sin and turning away from it. And when you start to see people talk about, when they come to your office, they come to your program and they say, I realize that what I've done has led to the breakup of my marriage. And I realize what I've done is something that God doesn't want. And I, if I do anything to change that. And they begin to cry. What do you know? They're starting down the right path. <clears throat> I've had people do that in, the, in, in our health programs. And I'm sure you have in your practice. Repentance is not just, well, I'm going down the highway and I'll kind of turn this way because you're still going to get hit. It's going the opposite way. I had a dog over in Romania. <clears throat> this dog's name was Crafty. <clears throat> They called him crafty, which means crafty. And uh, that's why I can remember it. And uh, crafty had this interesting ability. He could climb uh, most anything. He could climb this ladder. And he could go up anything. And the problem was he couldn't come down. So if you let him out, he would find something, he'd climb it, and then you'd hear him, ah! <laughs> I mean, not like that. It sounds like a baby, but he's barking. And he's crying out for the gift of repentance. I need the gift. And we go out and give him the gift of repentance. 
And uh, that's what we need. What is that? <laughs> we must neither accept nor be drawn away by counterfeits. God wants our practices not to be superficial practices that just put plastic over something, right? If at all possible, he wants it to be the full meal deal, the happy meal. Happiness forever, isn't that right? And, you know, you can't give someone a gift of repentance unless they want it. So this is not twisting their arms, but your heart has to be there and my heart has to be there. Men will never be true truly temperate until the grace of Christ is the abiding principle heart. We read this already. Circumstances cannot work reform. Christianity proposes a reformation in the heart. What Christ works within will be worked out under the dictation of a converted intellect. The plan of beginning outside and trying to work inward has always failed and always will. So this whole idea of repentance has got to be front line in our thinking. Repentance includes sorrow, turning away from sin. We may not renounce sin unless we see its sinfulness and until we turn away from it in heart, there's no real change. Christ must be revealed to the sinner as the Savior dying for the sins of the world, the Lamb of God upon the cross of Calvary. And the goodness of God leads us to repentance. That's what you want to show in your practice, the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. Now I'll tell you just one last thing about George. I was so impressed with George. You know, he, had, he, he showed me his shed and he had all these different signs. He had an arsenal. This was just one sign. Whenever he would take on abortion and different causes using texts. And he would get beat up. He told me about it. But his whole life was lived to try and bring people this work. And I was very critical at first when I saw George, but then I said, what am I doing? Am I an epistle known and read by all men? Later that day, I was walking down another place in, in Edinburgh, and it was about time for me to get back on the train and go back to the Vegetarian Congress. I'd given enough time for that man to maybe not want to kill me, vegan revolution. And as I got on the train to go back, I came along, along this, right where Sir Walter Scott has a monument there, and there's a, some benches there in Edinburgh, and I was walking right there, and I saw, I saw two couples sitting there. And you know what these couples had? They had signs, like George's sign. And I said, that's odd. They weren't exactly like this. They were different topics. And I went up to him and I said, Hi, do you know George? And they said, Yes, I know George. I said, how, how did you meet George? Well, he was carrying a sign one day. Convicted us. And I had a really serious medical condition. I realized I didn't have much time. And I said, I'm going to carry signs like George for the rest of my life and I don't have long to live. And then I went back to the doctor the next time and he said my condition was miraculously gone. And I thought for him and I said, man, George had fruit for his ministry. <laughs> I still wouldn't recommend it to you nat naturally. But God can use what you do. You are his epistle to be known and read by all men. Understanding motivation, causation, the basic struggle, sources of authority. We've got to lead people from the textbooks and from the scientific studies to God's Word. Yeah. The awesome power of God in creating the cell 
and spanning the universe. The heavens declare. The earth shows his, his, his power. And this whole concept of an orderly world, as deduced from the rational and consistent God of the Bible, provided the basis for belief in cause and effect concept of science. The pagan gods of other cultures were capricious, and this didn't fit with the consistency of science. Only, as they've studied this, Ariel Roth says, only in the Judeo-Christian context could science have flourished. Everywhere else it didn't flourish. And so people don't understand that. I start to help them understand that. Okay. Dealing with issues of the heart. These are the principles, motivation, causation, understanding the basic struggle, and the sources of authority. Dealing with issues of the heart. When people come to your office, I think Dean Ornis is right. Not everything he does is right, but this statement is right. The real epidemic in our culture is not only physical heart disease, but also what I call emotional and spiritual heart disease. That is the profound feelings of loneliness, isolation, alienation, and depression that are so prevalent in our culture with a breakdown of social structures that used to provide us with a sense of connection and community. So we have to never forget that, and we have to lead people to the Savior who can give them rest. Now what I want to share with you then, and let's take a little break because you're probably tired here, right? You, does anyone need a break? Are you okay? Okay, I can keep going then. That's fine. I don't need a break. Um, what I want to share with you then is kind of the nuts and bolts of this study. What's the connection is a series of studies that was designed to help people that were, were going through the CHIP program or other like seminars. But the principles are pretty much the same. Anyone you would be witnessing with. I'm working with uh, several physicians and their practices to put together studies for their practices or their ministry, like Dr. Nedley, his depression recovery seminar. I'm writing a series of studies for that. Um, these are, they're basically the same. And I want to show you the concepts now of leading people from one to the other. Let me see here if I can get down. This, uh, I'll come back to this one if I have time. I'm switching through this. Okay. Let me just look at this then with you. All right. What's the connection? Again, these are just all the concepts we learned. I don't take credit for any of them, but uh, these are the things that the, the people coming through our programs have taught us. And in this series, what I've done, this is from the back of the DVD, leads people to consider health from a spiritual perspective. It's built on the belief that lasting change can only come through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. The first lesson builds confidence in the scriptures as the ultimate source of authority through a study of the original diet and God's Exodus health program. The remaining lessons explore the first chapters of the book of Daniel from a health perspective and lay a solid foundation for the study of Bible prophecy. What's the connection has been used with different um, seminars. So the philosophy of health ministry, everything I just covered with you just now is in the book. There's 26 pages that go through that study and add some other things. They're excellent materials to, to help you study. And uh, I mean, they're just... They're basically from gems that have been gleaned from working together with the team there in Wichita. And uh, they also are good team-building material 
if you have others. Like if you wanted your nurses or your hygienist or whoever works with you or your people at your church to go through it, it helps to train them. Um, there's promotional material in it. We use this as a follow-up to the CHIP program where we are, and I have that on one of the DVDs. There are eight DVD presentations or bridge studies that they show me. I don't recommend showing me. Um, I recommend that you do it. You lead the study. So the PowerPoint are there as well. Uh, I always think it's better for you to use your own personal gifts, and uh, plus you're, you're, you're much better to look at than me. And then there's an invitation uh, to follow up to the prophetic studies. So let me look at this now closely. Um, in our program, we learned that you have to have a plan. You know, when someone comes to your office, you know what's supposed to happen. The receptionist talks to them. They pull the old chart. They make sure that this is all up to date. They get all that information, and there's a flow. And you know what that flow is, right? So you kind of know that. And the same thing has got to happen when you work with, uh, with the Lord as well. And what we've learned in that is that um, um, during our four-week program, I give assignments to people each week. This is what you need to know about the people at your table. And I ask them what's happening. And the reason I, I talk with them about that is because I just learned that by a process of doing it myself. And so I know how to ask them those questions and different things. And they, do you know their name? I mean, it's pretty basic. Do you know your name? Do you know their work? Do you know what their family's like? And what's a concern of theirs? First week. And I'm always asking them where they are in terms of their relationship with them. And then we begin praying for them. Now, we don't pray in our programs overtly um, at first. And uh, I guess the reason for that is because we want to, people to give permission. But we start to pray when they don't know about it. And we've seen a great difference when we're praying for people, even if they don't know about it, behind the scenes. Um, I could show you my journal books from the times when we just prayed for people, the check marks each time they pray, we prayed and different things. And sometimes when they start to come along and I have that relationship, I'll take out my book and I'll show them their name with the check marks by it. You know, And you know what happens there. They'll go, whoa, either you, you know, uh, either you're a fruitcake or you really, you, you've been praying to the Lord for me. And the reason I did that was that back in the emergency room when I worked there, I worked with all kinds of people in this emergency room in Benton Harbor, St. Joe. And it's a pretty rough place, Benton Harbor. I mean, one guy got stabbed right in, in front of me in the triage death. The guy came in and, and he had been with the, with someone he shouldn't have been, this man's wife. And so the guy came in and stabbed him, went right through his heart, he died. This is a rough place, right? And uh, the nurses there and the paramedics and the people were either very spiritual or very cynical. I mean, there, there are one of two ways. And so in that environment, you know, uh, with very secular people and then the people coming in, you know, how do you pray for people? And and I learned that if you tell people sometimes you're praying for them, it can terrify them. I went into someone's room and I said, I'm praying for you. Is it that bad? Oh, they freaked out. I was like, so I, I, I kind of kicked it back a notch and I said, I've been thinking about you a lot. 
it's honest. I use my thought process when I pray. And then I, but what happened was, and, and this all factors in, I mean, I can't undergird this enough. What happened is I began to develop this prayer life. I'd get off work and I would go to the YMCA and I would pray while I was swimming. What are you gonna, else are you going to do while you're swimming? I mean, it's relatively boring. So I'm swimming, putting in my time, right? But I'd swim a lap for different people. I mean, it's not meritorious or anything, you understand, but it wasn't nothing like that. But I would swim a lap, and for some people, I'd swim two or three, <laughs> you know, swimming these laps. And, and then I, my list got longer, and I had this big paper, so I laminated it. And, and then I put it right at the end of the pool, and I would go along. I couldn't make the check marks as well, but, you know, it was like, and I would pray for these people. And I saw a powerful thing happen in those people's lives. And uh, it, was, it was moving the right arm of God. I now understand that. Just, I could just tell you just, just powerful stories. Whatever your program is, whoever you're working with, if you want your, hosp, your, your, your staff in your clinic to have a, a more spiritual spirit, start praying for them. And you know what the Lord's going to do? He's going to change what he can change. And it's probably going to be you at first. And what I started praying in the emergency room I'll tell a little bit more of this tomorrow, the conversion story a bit, but when I started praying, he really started working on me. I was talking to a doctor from Ardmore. Uh, my brother-in-law, Joel Nephew, is a pastor that works with my brother-in-law in Ardmore as a Bible worker slash office manager. And when he went into that practice, um, you know, he just began to notice the things that can really change the dynamics. And you've got to study where you are. And uh, what you do will many times set the tone. I remember, I'll have to tell you one quick story. There was this lady in the emergency room. Her name was Kim. And she was the receptionist, but she thought she was in charge of the universe. And, and, and I think she could have been, if you know, rightly equipped. She, she, she was a terrifying human specimen. She was larger than she should be. And she would, would use her largeness to intimidate people including me, um, and I was the charge nurse. And she said, I have been here 30 years and this and that. You know, and I said, what am I going to do with this person? You know, and I'd have these encounters with her. I sent her once up to the supervisor and different things. She almost lost her job. But I, I still loved the person. I, I wanted her to make it, you know. So I just began to pray for her. I said, Lord... Do what it takes to me and to her to make this happen. And, and, and she heard her back <laughs> the next week. I, I'm not saying that was, a, I mean, God works in mysterious ways, right? And she was, she was just like, ugh. And she was so big we had to put her on a stretcher, you know. And she didn't go home. And I was, I was like, Lord, is this an answer to my prayer, you know? And at first there was just like this peace and calm. And everyone was like, oh, good. Kim is gone, you know? And I was like, this is not right. I mean, I, I can't be rejoicing in the falling of my, my friend Kim. And so, you know, praying about it. And I said, what do you want me to do? And I go home and the Lord convicts me. Take Kim something to eat. She likes to eat. You know that's true. <laughs> so, I mean, it, I knew it was going to work, right? So, I, I baked these rolls. 
I don't bake rolls anymore. My wife doesn't let me. But back then I was pretty good at it. And I took these rolls into her. That was the end of the problems. End of the problems. When she came back to the emergency room as a clerk, I never had a better friend. Completely changed. So in your practice where you are, the, you, you're the spiritual leader. Look, you can be the spiritual leader even if you're not the physician there. I found that out. But if you're the physician, you really, or the dentist, you can really set the tone. So in our health programs, what we did was we took our people that were sitting at the tables and we'd pray for them on this list. And uh, we'd have different people at each table, sitting there at each table. Um, and uh, um, oh, I guess I had this down. He came to seek and save the lost. We had table parents. We had we would eat meals with them on Sundays. And if in your practice or whatever, you know, it's a great time when you eat meals with people. The drug reps will bring in the, the meals. Does this happen for you? And then you have them bring in certain things that they don't usually bring in. And I like working with drug reps, you know. And I tell them about the first drug pusher. I said, you know how this drug problem got started with drugs, you know, bad drugs? I mean, you got good drugs, but you know the bad ones? They go, no. I said, let me show you this. I'll tell them about Eve <laughs> and how the devil said, I'm going to get you high. You know, <laughs> they love it, man. They're just like, wow, man. <laughs> oh, man. So table parents, meals, eight, and, and we have a, have a game plan where they're supposed to be. This is all in the book. And then we, the settings for your situation change. You know, there's not one size fits all. Jesus met with Nicodemus in the middle of the night, the lady at the woman at the well, then he fed the 5,000. So you've got different settings, but ultimately I think everything you do comes down to one-on-one interaction. I'm leading a group, a small group or whatever. You know what happens? I, have, I see them make changes in a group, but then i got to talk to them personally. I can say, hey, you know, you and I need to get together. We'll talk. And it takes them over. Don't say that. Don't, don't think someone else is going to do it. you got to, am I right? you 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 got to sit down with them and say, you know, I've noticed this. Now, you're terrified about this. I know you're going to look. <laughs> look, I was terrified about it too, but I'll tell you what. That's the only thing that really works. They see that you care. For them. Small groups, the presentation of Christ and the family to the fireside and the small gatherings in private houses is more successful in secure, securing souls to Jesus than our sermons. I hate this. <laughs> delivered. No, I love it, really. Sermons delivered in the open air to the moving throng or even in halls or churches. Ooh, that hurts the pastor to read that. But it's true. A chance speech or discourse may set minds in a train of thought which will, through other influences, what's that mean? Your one-on-one visit. Through other influences brought to bear on them result in their conversion. But these cases are rare. We cannot afford to labor with such uncertain results. Do you think that's followed in the Adventist church today? No. I mean, hospitals are the cathedrals of secularism, and we think that they're just going to be taken care of by the hospital. No, by follow-up or clinics, you know, small groups. So in our church, we did small groups um, that we would bring people into. I would try to have them do the seminar either in a small group setting or if they're highly... Um, if they're a Nicodemus type, one-on-one. Um, 
And then I tried it also in a seminar setting. I, I, I would say that ultimately how all of them end up one-on-one. -on -one. Small groups are successful, more successful than these different things it said there. And she called those other methods risky. Going into the family, into the private houses is uh, really where it's at. Um, I pick people. I only have a little bit of time in life. I'm not going to live forever. So in my health classes or different things, I try to say, who is wistfully looking towards heaven? Who? And then secondly, I say, who is the most highly, uh, at least in my humble estimation, hopefully led by the Spirit, who is going to be the, the best use of my time? I, I mean, that sounds judgmental, but a Nicodemus or that kind of a person can really bring great leadership. I look for people that maybe are leaders already in what they're doing. They, I took this guy who was a contractor. He came through one of our health classes, and he had all these people working, all these men working for him. I said, if I get the chief, you know, all the Indians will follow. So I went to, I went to his house. I went to his house, and I had a visit to see if this was the right one, and it was the right one. And I studied with him. And now all of those people are studying. He, he makes the people that work for him come to church if they've got problems with drugs or alcohol or stuff. He says, you can't work for me unless you come to church. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. All these people are coming in. But that was two years being in his home. Now, you can't study with everybody. You can't do it all. But what I found out is I can take four or five people a year. I'm as a pastor. I mean, pastors have other stuff to do. You may not know that. But they do. And, and they're, they're busy too, right? And so I can only pick these ones. And the second thing I do is I try to do it in a small group, if it's appropriate, with a member. Because then I'm discipling another member and I'm showing them what I do. I am bringing that person in. You see what I mean? And there's just massive payoffs for this. It's a great investment. It, it, it is an investment of time. But look, when I look out the congregation now and I see all those people that then are bringing in people... There's nothing like it. I mean, that's the, that's it. Okay, spiritual game plan. Looks like I already did that. Okay. Um, so we did number one. Number two, promotional material in the thing. I told you about that. Here's what some of those look like. What's the connection? I should probably show you a couple of these studies here. Um, before I end so you can see them. It's 1 o'clock. Okay, i got plenty of time. Here's the promotional material. After they go through the CHIP program or whatnot, I, I have a little flyer that says, The Egyptian Connection, What Mummies Have to Say About Modern Health, The Research Connection, The New England Journal of Medicine Called It the Oldest Scientific Study, Is It Still Valid Today? What Scientists Are Learning About Relationships and Those Types of Connections. So I invite them to come. Many times they'll come um, because of that. I use different uh, uh, flyers for different purposes. Now, the studies themselves are eight presentations, and I have handouts and program scripts for them. And uh, let me see if I can find now one of them. Let me show you one. Here's number one. When people come through your class, they've been there, or to your practice or whatnot, you're now moving them from science to revelation. They're asking, what's the connection? You recognize that this person's open. They're, they're, uh, they've moved along. So the first thing you need to do is to, to introduce them to other credible sources. So the first study, I look at the, at the Exodus. And um, we see there, oh, wait a minute. 
This is not the first study. Let me just show you the actual first study so you see this. You want to see the first study? You don't have a choice. Um, let me see this here. All right. What's the connection in PowerPoint? Here it is. All right. Uh, you, you, you've brought them along, and they are—they're interested. Now, let me show you this first one. This is now moving them. It's moving them now from, you know, this build-up to making this connection. And this—this this all happened when people started asking, "What's the connection?" And I took a group of them. I said, "Look, people are all asking me this question. Can I come to your house and try out an answer on you?" You know, and they're—they're they're, of course. My cholesterol came down. I have life. I'm living. You can come over. You know, most everyone said yes. So I went over and I said, look, I don't know what I'm doing. You just tell me what, if I say something that's offensive. My wife talks to me every day about this. Don't feel bad about it if you say that and if I'm saying things this way or that way. So we were learners together. I'll, let me give you, I'll just give you an overview of this one then. What time is it? 1.30, right? Oh. Okay, let me, uh, we better quit. But let me just tell you briefly this. What I do is I, in the first lesson, I, I take them on a study of the Exodus and move them, key number one, from the study of the Exodus to see that the people in Egypt were dying of the same things we die of today. And the things that God said to eat are the same things that we had in our program. And they say, boom, that makes sense. Second study, Daniel chapter 1. I saw the oldest scientific study in the Bible. The New England Journal of Medicine says that Daniel is the oldest scientific study. And so I read them that JAMA article, and I say, let's look at it. And I show them how Daniel chapter 1 documents the same thing and shows that there would be a reversal of their situation in about 10 days. I show them cats, uh, uh, PET scans and CAT scans that show the reversal of different things. I show them the science on that. But then I say, well, look, the new element here in the Exodus program, everybody went through it, but only two got out alive of the wilderness. And uh, how can you get out alive? By giving your heart to God like Daniel did. It says Daniel purposed in his heart. The word purpose means to give. It's the same word that's used when it says he gave names. That's the same word. So I say, he gave his heart. Do you know how to give your heart to God? And I stop. They listen. And they'll go around. I'll, 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 I'll listen to them. And then I show them how to give their heart to God in that lesson. They step out in faith. God gives them grace. Step out in more faith, God gives them more grace. And I show that, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 2, and this is the last one, and then we'll go. In Daniel chapter 2, we normally study as Adventists what in Daniel chapter 2? The statue! Daniel 2! I love the statue. You like the statue? Love the statue. But that's not the point of Daniel chapter 2. I hate to break it to you. The, first po the, the, the point of Daniel chapter 2 is what is the connection? How do I maintain my connection with Christ, with God? The king has two groups, those that are praying on him and those that are praying for him. And he has to figure out which is which. Some are saying they're scientists and some are whatnot. And he figures out, he says, look, these people that are saying they know everything, they finally admit we're not connected to God. So what I do in that study is I show the importance of these connections, right? And these connections, I talk about the connections in their life. The relationships, and we get into all kinds of things there, and we begin to reveal the spiritual heart disease. And it then continues all the way up through Daniel chapter 6. And Daniel chapter 6, I, that, that lesson will just crystallize it in three words. Daniel chapter 6 is a parallel between two things. 
God's law versus man's law. And there's this crisis, and you've got to choose. And once they choose, and they're satisfied in God, they choose God's way. They become satisfied. Daniel was sealed in a tomb, and he had settled it with God. And I asked him, do you want to be satisfied with God? Do you want to seal it with God? Do you want to be settled? Do you want to be sealed? Right? And they will say, yes, they want to be. They make these decisions. And you see, they're completely ready now to do what? Study the prophecies. It can be used. It's non-sectarian in the sense that it's not related to Adventism. But it gets you ready for the prophecies. Let's close together. I've appreciated your attention. I do have all, more of that. When I didn't gauge my time, I thought I had until 1.30. But let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful today that you came and made the most important connection. And anything we've learned is really nothing compared to you. Your spirit has to lead and guide us. I pray for each person here, for each practice represented, for each family, for each relationship, for each home, that we can, uh, we could uh, be equipped to truly make or help people make the connection that we are constantly having to nurture in our own lives. Give us a devotional life with you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.